Hello, and welcome back to the Highway to Hoover podcast, a production of SEC Extra over at D1Baseball.com. We're continuing our series with beat writers from all over the SEC, and today I am joined by Travis L. Brown of the Bryan College Station Eagle to talk some Texas A&M baseball and, and plenty to talk about there with a team that, you know, in recent weeks in the SEC is, has heated up and looked a little more like itself, if we want to put it that way. But uh, before we jump into any of that, I have to let you know that this episode of Highway to Hoover and every episode this season is brought to you by Brock's Gap Brewing Company in Hoover, Alabama. Visit Brock's Gap Brewing for more information. And remember to mark your calendars for May 22nd for a live episode of Highway to Hoover at Brock's Gap the night before the SEC tournament starts. Again, brocksgapbrewing.com. Uh, Travis, first of all, I appreciate you joining us. For those watching on the video edition, are getting a just wonderful backdrop that Travis is giving us there. Beautiful day in, in uh, BCS in Aggieland. Um, so that's that's great uh, ambiance there for our for our viewers and our listeners. But I, I appreciate you joining us. And and um, I should also say that we are recording this after Texas A&M took a five to one loss uh, to UTSA in the midweek. And I don't need to tell this probably to most of our listeners but yeah utsa a good club a team i expect to be in the postseason but but travis to what degree did did maybe you look at that loss last night as a reversion to some of the stuff we saw from this team early in the season as far as struggling offensively not getting depth in in the starting pitching or just kind of a tuesday games are kind of weird and that was a good team type of situation you know i think it's probably a little bit more along the lines of UTSA came out and they knew with a cancellation, a rain cancellation in one of their games this weekend, a couple an extra day off and a, their highest RPI ranked game of the season. They had the ability to throw a few more bullets at this game. And I just don't think A&M, it kind of goes back to what Jim Schlossnagel said after the game. I just don't think A&M was ready for it. I think they kind of rolled into this with the typical, what you would think regional school Tuesday uh, atmosphere and or, or, mentality and they're going up against uh what like top top 30 batting average team in the in the country top 16 uh uh, uh, era team in the country a closer with just everything going right now um they threw their they threw their a guy who's been a, a saturday guy for most of the season came back with their second highest innings pitch guy out of the bullpen came back after that with a guy with five saves came back after that with their Friday starter and then threw the closer out there for, for good measure uh, to close it out. Yeah. They mixed up the lineup a little bit, tried to get some different things going, put Trevor Warner uh, at the top at the leadoff position uh, and Hunter Haas, who's been one of their most consistent hitters this season at the three hole, tried that didn't really work out. There, there were some things at play here. Um, I'll be interested to see if they get into this series against Missouri this weekend and those hitting struggles continue, that might be time to raise the alarm a little bit. But as I'm sure we're going to get to in this, all signs of, of alarm bells point towards starting pitching uh, with this team. And that's, that's what, what, what made this thing insurmountable for them from the get-go. I guess let's start there um, because I think that, you know, I said early in the season and it was true at the time when the, when the, when the offense was really scuffling out of the gate, coming out of that, the, the tournament at Minute Maid, for example, I, the thought I had was what well, the pitching has actually kind of held this team up a little bit. You know, Chris Cortez threw great against Texas tech and Wansing had had some great starts and 
the, the reports that we'd all gotten that, hey, Detmer might be a different dude this year looked like they were right on the money. Um, and that has kind of flipped. I mean, as the offense has come alive, getting starts, you know, of any sort of quality or depth has become an issue. I mean, even even Detmer, though, he's been the steadiest of the bunch hasn't been a version of himself that I think we were, we were looking for there. So what is just generally the state of play on the pitching staff? I mean, where it's a really broad question, but where are they at right now? And, and what can this team bank on, on the mound? Yeah. So here's, here's the best way to put it as far as the starting pitching goes last night when Troy Wansing exited the game after uh, I think it was an inning and two thirds uh, and wasn't in line to get the win. It was exactly a month since the last time an A&M starting pitcher earned a win in a ball game. It was March 11th. Uh, it was actually Troy Wansing who went six innings against Northern Kentucky. So they actually haven't had a starting pitcher earn a win in SEC play uh, this season. And they haven't uh, up until I think Nathan Detmer went, I believe it was over five this last weekend at uh, uh, Auburn. They hadn't had a pitcher get even really anywhere close to six innings, a starting pitcher this season. I mean, the, the, the rotation started out with uh, Nathan Detmer, Troy Wansing, Chris Cortez, uh, which seemed kind of a natural fit and flow about how that was going to go. Schlossnagel likes to sandwich his uh, righties with the lefty, and that's Troy Wansing. Chris Cortez is the guy who can hit 99 uh, on the and, and supposedly come in and really improve his breaking stuff. And Nathan Detmer was an anchor of the team last year, was supposed to be coming in. He's bigger, put on weight, is that sinker ball pitcher, has good breaking stuff just good all around stuff uh, as long as he keeps it under control. Uh, and all of that seemed to kind of fall apart there um, through the, the middle portion of this, the, the, really the beginning of SEC play. Uh, it, it's moved to where now it, the last two weeks it's been Nathan Detmer and the freshman Justin Lampkin on Saturday, plus the always friendly TBA on Sunday. And it's digressed to the point where now coming into Missouri this weekend, it's Nathan Detmer, TBA, TBA. Uh, and he does. Jim Schlossigl still seems like he's trying to search and find what the situ- the, the 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 option is going to be there because it, they, he said they could go back to Wansing. Wansing, of course, pitched Tuesday uh, and didn't look great against UTSA. He could go uh, to Chris Cortez. Uh, he could go to. He even said mentioned Josh Stewart, who is a guy who up until the Texas State midweek game a week prior to, to yesterday. Um, he had only pitched, uh, like had like four appearances this season, came out and had a great outing against Texas State, a really great story, a guy who always wanted to play at A&M, didn't get that initial, um, uh, didn't get that initial uh, uh, offer, went to Texas for a year, and then was able to transfer into Texas A&M this year, has always dreamed about pitching, he seems to be coming into his own a little bit, so they might go with an opener situation in one of those games uh, and, and use them as an opener to get through the lineup once and then kind of do bullpen game from, from there on out. So it is a coaching staff that is grasping for straws to try to find some ability to get through the order the one or two times uh, and not be down as they have been in most of these games. You even look at Auburn, who is a pitching staff who is kind of in the same situation in some mixes they were uh, A&M was still having to hit their way out of those games. Uh, and so it's just going to be interesting. But the biggest question mark that they have, 
and he's Jim Schlossinger has addressed this a couple of times is the one guy that has been their stalwart, save for last night, has been Evan Oshenbeck, who's a junior college transfer from Blinn. He's from just down the road in Burnham here. Uh, you, you can almost smell the Bluebell factory about 45 minutes away where where he's from. And uh, he, he's, he's a not hard throwing lefty. He tops out at about the upper 80s, but he has a great breaking pitch he developed over the fall. And he's been their consistent strike thrower. I did a feature on him uh, a week prior and talked to his coach at Flynn, talked to his coach at Burnham. And they said even while they were he was developing, they were actually having to teach him how to strategically not throw strikes because too many guys were honing in knowing this ball is going to be in the zone. I just need to tee off on it. Uh, and as he came here, developed that breaking pitch, you know, he, he had a great outing in Minute Maid uh, in that 16-inning game against Texas Tech. And Jim Schlossnagel kind of was surprised because he said, like, this is a guy who throws strikes, but our guys battered him around the park a little bit in the fall. We didn't know he was going to be this. And he's been the only guy that they know that they can roll out there and get strikes and get out of innings. He was a starter all through high school and in junior college. And so the question's kind of been, okay, so when is it going to be his turn to go in the rotation? And Schlossnagel has held to the fact that he thinks with his kind of change of pace uh, stuff that he has, he's better served coming after a guy that has the more traditional SEC stuff to kind of be that, get the guys on, on their front foot a little bit, and that he believes that maybe getting him in the starting rotation, he might not be as effective. So – but it's kind of answers that question of he's a guy that throws strikes. The problem is they're walking too many batters. They're giving up home runs and they become two and three run home runs instead of solo shots. And so do you need to just get the guy in there? Who's the strike thrower and see what happens. It'll, that's a, that's a little bit of a soap opera here that I'm going to be interested to see how that plays out in the weeks to come. Certainly A&M in good company, as you allude to with, with Auburn, that that's one example, but the SEC West is, is frankly kind of littered with teams that are in a similar place on the mound. Like Arkansas is battling some of this LSU is obviously in great shape with skeins, but even beyond that, they're a little banged up. So A&M certainly has a, has a lot of company in that regard. And also with the walks, frankly, I was talking to somebody the other day that said, you know, the, the SEC obviously has arm strength for days, but it feels like the pitch ability is lacking a little bit in that league this year. I mean, Mississippi State is the extreme example where they, they've had all kinds of issues in this regard. But it seems like in a lot of places, there are just a lot of walks in this in this league. And so, you know, I, I, I'm not smart enough to be able to tell anyone why that necessarily is. But it, it does seem like that is a little bit of a little bit of a, a trend around the league. And, and I'm sure you've seen a lot of it because A&M's offense is also one that wants to force pitchers to do that. Right. You know, work. Yeah, there's, there's and, something and stuff like that. There's something to that because you look when in kind of researching Oshenbeck, he is that classic junior who his senior year was COVID year and he didn't get to play a senior year because of COVID and Schlossnagel, some other coaches I've talked about have talked about pitchers who missed that season, whether it was, senior year in high school, junior year in high school, freshman year in college, um, who didn't get that opportunity. That's just a year that they didn't get to develop. And if they're throwing, they're throwing pins by themselves in a backyard or going out to a high school field. And I think there is something to speaking a little bit anecdotally, the fact that the crop of pitchers that are out there now are guys who have all that arm talent, but are just a year shy, a year back of where they normally would be. Um, developmentally as becoming pitchers, not just throwers. It's a great point. I mean, there, there are other things you could kind of, you know, uh, you, you look at a guy like Paul Skeens and of course going to the Air Force Academy, like maybe he, I don't, I don't know, but maybe he just was like really set on that being his career choice at the time. But you can imagine a guy with an extra year of seasoning 
being someone who ends up getting drafted out of high school. Right. I mean, so th- that is interesting. It's an interesting point. It's something I, I, I definitely want to think about a little more as the season goes on and, and use that as context. Um, moving on to the position player side, uh, the offense has, you know, it had its nadir about the third week of the season, but it is kind of steadily, slowly, but surely it hasn't been linear necessarily, but it has come on of late to, to what do you most, um, say that the cause of that is, I mean, Trevor Werner's hitting a little bit better. Minnick is healthy. Now Jay Slaviolette seems to have pushed through the freshman wall a little bit, or, or maybe something else. What would you point to as, as the reason for that resurgence offensively? Yeah, it, it does seem like getting Brett Minnick back in the order just really gave a lot of confidence to a lot of different guys. He, um, you know, of course came back, was a guy that maybe could have test the waters professionally after the season last year. Uh, but he played hurt through most of the entirety of the second half of the season last year and said that he wanted to come back and have a year where he was healthy, 100%, good to go, put up some good numbers and see where that took him. And uh, Jinx, first at bat, first game, he slides in head first at first, breaks his hand, and he's out for six weeks uh, through the beginning of the season. But he did a good job of staying in uh in front of bullpen he couldn't swing the bat but he got in there with Nate Yeski the pitching coach in their bullpen and just watched pitches and watched pitches and watched pitches uh as he was to kind of keep his timing in while those pitchers were throwing bullpens uh and, and he was really successful about getting back in and having that timing from the get-go I mean he he, he didn't get a hit in his first game batch back which was the midweek game against Texas but he had some great exit velocities on some outs he was hitting into. And then he comes back in and has a, a three home run uh, uh, weekend the next weekend. And he is launching balls. And there's just something that seemed to be a, a kind of a galvanizing confidence about having that bat back in the lineup that has sparked other guys around him to, to kind of find their stride in the bat. So I think uh, there's probably a lot of different things. You mentioned Jace Laviolette, freshman, getting some more at-bats, getting some more confidence in there. Uh, Austin Boast and Trevor Warner getting uh, Trevor Warner getting healthy again. Austin Boast kind of finding his stride. So there, there's there's parts of that, but I think it all came together when Brett Minnett kind of came back in and, and they were able to kind of find an order around him that really worked. Earlier you mentioned Hunter Haas, and, and that's a guy that – you know, I was intrigued by as, as a transfer. And I think a lot of it, frankly, to be honest, a lot of it was defensively because I, you know, I remember at Arizona state working on some stuff and I had PAC 12 coaches saying that he was the best defensive infielder in the PAC 12. And that was when he was playing third base because at the time Arizona state had a really good defensive infield. They just didn't have room for him at shortstop. And so, so I was kind of looking, especially with A&M's defensive struggles last year on the infield, I thought that's a really great fit, but lo and behold, he's been their most consistent offensive player this season. Um, how much do you perceive that to be a little bit of a surprise to this coaching staff, or do you think they kind of saw this all along for him? I think they saw this, at least some of it all along, definitely the defensive side of it. And I know, uh, you know, one of his former teammates turned now current teammate, Jack Moss, uh, who was, was out there. Uh, he raved about him and said, he's one of the best teammates, one of the best players he played with before the season even started. Um, And and I know that they were high on him with what he was able to do in the fall. You know, Jim, there's never been a lack of really good defensive shortstops under Jim Schlossnagel, even going back to his time at at TCU. Um, He he puts a lot of emphasis on that defensive shortstop. And it's been, I don't want to say icing on the cake that he's been good, so good offensively, but 
I, I think that there is something to really honing in on, on having a good defensive shortstop and then s- slotting him into the lineup where it, where it matters. And he's been great at taking that, that leadoff hitters approach and, and getting on base and to their luck, to their, to their advantage, getting on base has been with a lot of hits too. Uh, and so, yeah, I think he's a guy that has probably all around been their most consistent player of the season. One, uh, as we, as we really dive in the weeds, this question, um, one of the question marks positionally was, was catcher coming into the season. You lose Troy Clonch. That's obviously huge. Um, and then they got caught out a little bit when Joe Powell, a Cincinnati transfer decided to, to walk away from baseball rather than transfer to A&M. And so they kind of got caught in between, but you know, Hank Bard and, and JD Gregson and, and Max Kaufer, is Kaufer or Kaffer, you know, the, the pronunciation. Coffer, yeah. So they're kind of they have three guys they've used not quite equally, but you know everybody's kind of gotten a look there. Like, have we learned anything about that catching position? Is there is there someone that you feel like has a little bit of a inside track, or do you feel like this is maybe just going to be a deal where those three guys all see quite a bit of time for the rest of the season? Yeah, the catching situation has been pretty interesting to me because Jim Schlossigel made no. Uh, qualms about it early in the season that he, he he his line was he's never had a team and he, there's never been a team that's advanced in Omaha that didn't have a good catcher uh and so with how big of a question mark that is and coming off of having a, a real solid one in Troy Clonch last year um it, it's gonna be it was interesting to see how that shaped up and on the surface it doesn't necessarily seem like they've answered that question but I think the answer to the question has been Max Coffer is going to be the catcher of the future for the Aggies. He's the guy that they're going to develop and work into being in that role. But Hank Bard coming in had the experience. And so he, he, I asked him about it today, and he said he's liked what both Hank Bard and Max Coffer has provided defensively. And, and ultimately, it's a defensive position. If, if the batting order around them is doing what they're supposed to do, they can afford to have a nine-hole catcher in there who is really, really good defensively and will provide a little bit of something – uh, here and there but at, with how up and down the lineup has been say for the last few weeks um, they've had to kind of play around with it J- uh, JD Gregson of course is going is, has been out and is going to be out for a while with a, with a foot injury um, so he hasn't been available so it's really down to a Bard and Coffer and so what it's kind of turned into is Bard is the guy that they're going to go with for now because he has the experience and they need a little bit of something to kind of spark this, to keep this thing going in the right direction, but they're constantly getting coffer at bats. I mean, you look at most of these games, Bard is playing through about the seventh to get a few at bats. And, and once they get into the seventh, eighth, ninth, you see coffer pinch hitting mo- more times than not to get in there, to get some at bats, to get some reps. And that's been the case through most of the games this year. So they, it's a, it's not really quite a platoon because it's not necessarily based on, left-hander, right-hander, you know, this pitcher likes this guy better. It's more that they need the consistency that Hank Bard gives them through the majority of the innings, but they want to continue to give giving uh, reps to, to, to Max Hofford because he's, he's going to be the guy moving forward. One big picture question to get you out of here on, and that's that, you know, A&M five and seven in the SEC on its surface, you know, you might kind of shrug your shoulders, but considering the difficulty of the schedule through the first few weeks of conference play, 
even with the context of Ole Miss maybe not having been as good as, as we thought they would be at this point. Still, to what to what extent do you kind of feel like they've they've done what they needed to do to set themselves up to achieve some of these big picture goals? Because they're not so far afield, they can't still host and maybe be a top eight national seed. Like all that stuff kind of seems in front of them, which I think looking at it a couple of weeks ago, going into that Ole Miss series, I think maybe some folks would have thought that would be a little bit of a stretch. Yeah, I think it's that's an interesting question because you have to look at you have to ask what perspective are you looking at from that if you're looking at it from the college baseball as a whole uh, as kind of an outsider to the program I, I i think that yeah they they certainly have done enough to keep them in contention to keep them in uh that that regional picture you know maybe uh, if they keep winning games to see where, where that goes but i think if you look at it from the perspective of the program itself from the fans expectations i, I mean i think this is an a and program that has the, the history and tradition that fans here expect to be hosting regionals every season. And I don't think that if you look at the makeup of what this team is now, say for some revelation here in the next couple of weeks, there's huge holes in this lineup, whether it be a uh, little bit inconsistencies hitting, uh, you know, Jim Schlossnagel last year and a lot of the coaches frequently said, you, you, you can't swing your way to Omaha. Well, that is an A&M baseball team last year that completely swung their way into the national semifinals because the, the pitching wasn't consistent last year either. And, and so I think if you want to look at it as, as just checking the, the box on this team this season of, hey, they made a regional. Hey, they made it to the postseason. You know, they were in the hunt for this and that. Sure, they've done enough to put that in that perspective, but – I mean, you know, this is the this is the road to Hoover. When you look at Hoover and how many solid pitchers you need to make it through that SEC tournament, they have one. And, and so once you get past Nathan Detmer, like who's going to advance you further games at Hoover? When you get into that regional, if you don't win that first game, who's going to step up beyond Detmer, beyond Evan Aschenbeck to, to get them beyond? I, I don't see – second, third, fourth wins in postseason play out of this team. And until that kind of manifests itself, I don't know if anybody feels real great around this program, fans in the program, with where things are going because they're not necessarily going to hit the goals and the expectations of this team unless they, they find that pitcher, they find a little consistency. So it's, it's, it, it's a yes and answer, I think. Yeah, the, the good improv partner, Travis Brown, there with a, with a yes and. Um, <laughs> I think they say that in improv, the classic. But I think that's right. There's a great punctuation on the, on the conversation because I think that's ultimately what it is. I mean, it's a good offense when they're really swinging it well, but the SEC is littered with elite offenses, right? And so you, you, that's a factor, and it's it is going to come down to can you find some can you find some guys in the mound or come back around on some guys on the mound, right? So um, I think that's a, a fabulous place to. Uh, to wrap the conversation. Although I did lie one more thing. Um, okay. I was telling Travis for our listeners, I was telling Travis, uh, offline. I, I, uh, little known fact about Joe is my first job out of college unrelated to media and all that stuff was, was at A and M. Um, and there are some things I miss now I miss, I grew up in the Houston area. So I miss Whataburger generally, like uh, just as a, as an entity, but there are a couple of spe- college station things I miss specifically. One is no longer with us. Rest in peace to Antonio's pizza, on Northgate, and the honey mustard mm-hmm. chicken pizza, uh, my dearly <laughs> departed honey mustard chicken pizza. Um, the other though is Fuego, 
Um, I lived like right over there by where Fuego is. Uh, Travis, what what is your go to uh, Fuego order if you have one, or do you kind of work your way around the menu? Okay, well, I'll I'll start off by saying I got married uh, last July, and Fuego catered our wedding. So if that wants, if you oh, want to put where Fuego falls in the pecking order in our family, they actually wow, no catered our wedding. I you're, you put me on the spot here because, and my wife will, and anybody who knows me will make fun of me. I'm I'm a very like plain and dry kind of guy, um, mm. you know, a burger, meat and cheese only, and so. I my go to at Fuego is just like a steak and cheese burrito, and I know that's in a weird way like sacrilege because they put so many great stuff and everything. But the thing that makes the Fuego burrito taco is the tortilla. They have that kind of fluffy, kind of almost bready tortilla, and it's great. The, the steak is seasoned great, so like it's amazing. So that's you, know, you got to get some chips and queso. Uh, I know my wife is all about the El Presidente. Um, she goes she goes mm. with that. Um, but yeah, man, Fuego, Fuego is otherworldly. Um, it is, it is so good. Uh, and there's like, you know, I'm, I'm from the Dallas area. Um, I've been a big city guy all my life. So when I took the job down here, I was like, this, you know, there's so many people who come to A&M who are actually from small towns to me when I first came here, this was like, oh my gosh, I'm moving, I'm moving to the small town. Um, and so I didn't know what this had to offer. College Station is a great food town. Like, it is a great food town. And there is some great places to eat here. Fuego, of course, being one of the ones towards the top. I was a, uh, I agree with you, by the way, that in my short time I lived in, in that area. And I lived, I lived in College Station. I didn't venture to, to Brian quite as much. But um, Fuego was one. It, Fuego comes in clutch, though, too, because it's 24 hours on the days they're open. Mm-hmm. So, like, in folks in, in a business like us, <laughs> like, it's kind of nice that, you know, you might have a game end at midnight and extra innings and you know that Fuego is going to be there for you. If, if, like me, you've already had Whataburger four times that week um, and you could do something <laughs> a little different. Um, See, there's, there's, there's 60,000. There's 60,000 students here now. And so like, I don't eat, I, I love Whataburger. Don't get me wrong, but I don't eat Whataburger in college station because there's never a time on the clock where there isn't two lines all the way wrapped around Whataburger. You just can't do it. So, and, and Fuego's pretty close to the same way sometimes, especially at night. Like you're going to be going inside to get your taco if you want to get Fuego at night, because it is absolutely bonkers here. Uh, but you remember saying, yeah, Christopher's is good. Republic's good. Yeah, Christopher's was the place where when I had zero money when I was living there, um, that was the place where I would just like gather up my money if I was, you know, like if the girl I was dating at the time, whenever we'd go out somewhere night, like Christopher's was was where it didn't have, you know, ultimately lived there just a year. So I didn't get to sample all of it. But I, I totally agree. I, I, I agree. So li- listeners that aren't already A&M people, because a lot of listeners will be, but so they know. But folks who maybe will make it to College Station for for a game at some point, we've just given you a lot of free uh, dining advice there, all across the spectrum of price points and cuisines and, and all that stuff. So uh, you're, I don't know about I'll, you, Travis, but uh, you're welcome to the listeners. I'll throw I'll throw a few out there as well. I, I ate at my favorite burger place, and people will fight me on this. Harvey Washbangers, really great. They mm. like mm-hmm. they like br- put like sausage into the the, the patty mix and. It's great. Uh, I uh, there's a whole Century Square area, like a modern new shopping dining area that has some great offerings over there. If you're here for lunch, they have Stella Southern Cafe. It's like a biscuit-based brunch place, biscuit French toast, biscuit sandwiches. They have one called the SEC. You know, it's it's that kind of 
Southern biscuit breakfast. Oh, it's, it's, I'm, I'm like, I'm getting hungry now just thinking about it. So <laughs> those are some of the optimum places to eat in college station. Yeah. Harvey Washbangers. I may have uh, 22 year old Joe may have had a, a beer or two or several at Harvey Washbangers. Do, do a load, do a load of laundry too. I did. Yeah. Well, I mean, what a, what a concept, yeah. honestly, like that's one of those ideas when I saw that I was like, why have I never thought of that? Like, why couldn't have I thought of right. this? You know, just it's, it's laundry it's, mat and burger joint bar all mixed together. So if you're a college kid and you need to do your laundry, you go throw it in the machine over there. There's like little light bulbs on the other side that have correlate with the number of washer and dryer. So you can come sit at the bar, get a beer, get a burger, and then the light goes off when your wash is done and you're up and out of there. You're, you're hungry, you're full, and you got things to wear. I mean, you're full, yeah. you're, 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 you're watered, and you got things to wear. It, yeah, just it, just incredible. Like incredible study and efficiency in, in, in our world, the, the, the Harvey Washbanger. So shout, shout out to those guys. Anyway, all right, folks, that uh, that is going to do it for this episode of uh, Highway to Hoover presented by Brock's Gap Brewing Company in Hoover, Alabama. Thanks to Travis Brown for joining me today. Uh, read all of his work at TheEagle.com. He's with the Bryan College Station Eagle. Support local beat writing, support local newspapers. I say that on all of these episodes. You know, beat writers make my job doing this a lot easier because they're doing on-the-ground reporting that I just can't do from my home. So that that's great. So uh, support him and the Bryan College Station Eagle at TheEagle.com. Uh, thanks to Travis. Thanks to you for listening. We'll talk to you all soon.